As we look at Second Chronicles, as the, the, the chronicler continues the journey, here's what we saw. P- primarily, First Chronicles is about the beginning of, uh, of the kingdom, a little bit of the time of Saul, and then we had an emphasis on the life of David, culminating that emphasis on the life of David focused on his preparation for the temple. Second Chronicles, we now are focused on King Solomon, David's son, who has taken his place Nine chapters devoted to Solomon. Of those nine chapters, eight of them are going to deal with his building the temple. So the temple is prominent, a prominent part in First and Second Chronicles. That that look at the temple. The reason for that is this is written to the exiles. The exiles are coming out of Babylon. the The kingdom age has ended. They're taken for seventy years of captivity. They're coming back to their home where their home was seventy years earlier. Everything's destroyed, and the move from the the people, from the leadership of the people coming back from the exile is to let's rebuild. Let's rebuild. With what? An emphasis on the temple. And uh, attempt to rebuild the walls and all those things as we uh, finish up Chronicles and we go in through uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. We'll come into that section. So this is a chronicler preparing the history, telling the people coming out, the things that occurred, how God was with them, how God uh, delivered the nation to a time of peace, and how they were able in that point to build the temple. So as we pick that up in Second Chronicles chapter 1, we come to Solomon. It says, Now Solomon, the son of David, was strengthened in his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him and exalted him exceedingly. Now before we go anywhere, anytime we study any of the heroes of the Word of God, or even the heroes maybe that we have today that are serving the Lord, this verse should be what echoes in our minds anytime we talk about them. No man or woman is great because of who they are. They are great because of who God is in their life. Those men and women who become great, those, those, uh, the hall of faith, if you will, people who rise to incredible heights and serving the Lord, do so because God is their God. He's become central in their life. We talked a little bit about that concept in the psalm. The psalmist would write to us, Delight in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. When men and women delight in the Lord, there are certain things that we see in their life that enable them, perhaps equipping them, to maybe rise above the mediocrity around them. David for certain, and Solomon in the beginning. And we see that in these guys, that that was the Lord their God, the Lord his God, Solomon's God made him exceedingly great. Solomon is a man we know of for incredible wisdom, right? But it wasn't Solomon's wisdom that made him great. It was Solomon's God. So often we think that the greatest gift we can leave our children is an inheritance. Or maybe we think the greatest gift we can leave our children is a thriving farm. Or maybe we think the greatest gift we can leave our children is something along those lines. But the reality is the greatest gift you can give your children is a relationship with the Lord. And Solomon had that. He had that in the beginning. We read about it right here. The Lord his God, it says in verse 2, And Solomon spoke to all of Israel, to the captains of thousands and to hundreds, to the judges, 
to every leader in all of Israel, the heads of their fathers' houses. So all these people are gathered together. Solomon's first act is king. As we look at it, his first act of king was to worship. That's a pretty incredible statement. I've often been challenged by that concept, you know, that if you really want to know what your primary passion is in life, ask your children, and they'll tell you. You may not like what they tell you, but they'll tell you, at least from their perception, what your primary passion is in life. If we want to be men and women whose primary passion is the Lord, serving God, following the Lord, then that ought to be what other people see too, right? Well, let's face it, God doesn't need any more top secret uh, warriors. <laughs> he needs people who are willing to stand in the front, that that's who they are. We are men and women who delight in the Lord. Solomon, he's a, he's a young man, maybe somewhere in his his early teens at this point, because he took the reign or the crown of king at 12, but David was still alive for a while. So David could could kind of guide him and lead him and talk to him and stuff. But David's gone now. Solomon's on his own. And he finds himself there uh, uh, leading the people. So he's speaking to them all in verse 3. And Solomon, with all the assembly with him, went to the high place that was in Gibeon. Now, Gibeon's a unique study. You may remember Gibeon from earlier in the Old Testament. As we worked our way through Joshua, there was a group of people. You remember? They were called the Gibeonites. And Joshua was whooping everybody. And the Gibeonites, they dressed like they had traveled from a long ways away. But reality was, they were the next town in line to be conquered by Joshua. And they came in with moldy bread and moldy cheese. And they come in and they said to Joshua, Oh, we traveled from a long ways. We want to make peace. Joshua thinks they're outside of the of the borders because God said, don't make peace with anybody inside the borders, so Joshua wouldn't have done it. But he thought they came from a long ways away. And he didn't ask the Lord what to do. He said, sure, we'll make peace. So God had them honor that peace treaty all the way through. Joshua, Saul, David... When the tabernacle came to rest, as the children of Israel are in, the kingdom is set up, Saul is reigning and ruling, they put the tabernacle in Gibeon, in that town. The tabernacle, the the thing that was central to the worship of Israel all the way through the wilderness wandering. They put that tabernacle in Gibeon. But... You'll remember they lost the Ark of the Covenant. You guys remember that, right? They lost the Ark of the Covenant. Eli's kids took the Ark into battle, thinking that the Ark was some kind of... They watched Raiders of the Lost Ark, and they thought it would work like that. And so they took it into battle, and they lost the Ark. The Philistines had the Ark for a while, right? We we remember the stories. They they opened it up and messed with it, and, and, and they were plagued because they had it. So they put it on a couple of calves, winged calves, and let them go, and they walked all the way back to Israel. And that ark there stayed in a, in a town there until David decided he wanted to try to bring it to Jerusalem, not Gibeon. 
So David tried to move it to Jerusalem and he, he messed up, right? He moved it his own way. He didn't do it God's way. Somebody died. David kind of got a little bit afraid. I don't know how to do this right. He went home, studied the scriptures, discovered, ah, I know how to move it now. Came back and moved it properly, put it in Jerusalem and built another tent around it. One of the things we see in scripture is that God always wanted his people to be united in worship. Do we think that's any different today? If you do, read John chapter 17. John chapter 17, Jesus is praying what is called the high priestly prayer, in which he prays, not only for his disciples, but for everyone who will believe in him because of their testimony, that would include us, He prays that they would be united in worship. We see that picture in the tabernacle of old, right? They brought the tabernacle and God said, don't just go to every high mountain, wherever you want to go. Just come here and worship. Worship centrally. And that doesn't mean just one church, but a unity in worship. When the, when the day of Pentecost had fully come and the Holy Spirit was, was birthing the church and came upon the church, what is unique about the 120 disciples that were gathered in the upper room? You remember what the scripture says? They were in one place and what else? One accord. And they were in prayer. I think it's powerful when the church, the body of Christ, not a denomination, the body of Christ, True believers are called from all different areas to pray. I think there's power in that. When we have the call to fall around the 4th of July, you know, and all these churches are are called to, to specifically spend some time in prayer. Or when we have the National Day of Prayer, focus on being united in worship, right? Man, those are powerful things. I, I had a chance to talk to Kathy. Kathy's at the Pastor's Wives Retreat, which is ending today. One of the speakers was kind of powerful, was Nagme. Everybody knows Nagme, right? Nagme Abedini, that's Saeed's wife. Saeed Abedini is a pastor from Boise who was born in, in Iran, got saved in Iran, started, worked in the underground church in Iran for a number of years, was on a kind of a hit list. Iran wanted to get him. And during that time as he ministered there, he met Nagmaid. Nagmaid's from Iran too. They fell in love. They met in the church, churches that he was starting. They get married. He ends up uh, escaping Iran and coming here, plugging in with uh, 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 Pastor Bob Caldwell in Boise. Um, and, and then escaping the persecution and finding himself there. Years later... He wants to go to work doing orphanages. So he contacts Iran. Iran says, oh, sure. As long as you promise not to do any underground church work at all, just orphanages, you can come. So he came. And they arrested him. And he's been in prison for a year now. Was sentenced to eight years for the work he had done all those years prior with the underground church. We've been praying for... Well, a year, right? That, that God would heal, strengthen, a variety of different things. Nagme spoke at the pastor's conference, and, or pastor's wives conference, and this is what she told all the pastor's wives. She said, go home and tell your churches to stop praying for my husband to be free 
and start praying for him to finish what God's got for him to do. That's a pretty powerful place to be, isn't it? A pretty powerful place to be. What happens if, if God's church is united in prayer, praying according to God's will? What happens? What's the Bible say happens? The Bible says, Saeed will finish what God has for him to do. The Word of God says, if you pray anything according to His will, you have what you ask for. Period. We either believe it or we don't, but that's what the Word says. There is a design within Scriptures where God is calling for united worship. But David brought the ark and he put it in Jerusalem. And then the tabernacles at Gibeah, and you had two high priests. One high priest at one place, one high priest at the other place. There's a little bit of division. What's going to happen under Solomon? There's going to be one temple. There's going to be all the stuff that was at the tabernacles, all going to end up in Jerusalem. There's going to be one place of united worship. It's, it's something that's, uh, that I think is pretty important to the Lord. We see here, though, Solomon goes to Gibeon. For the tabernacle of meeting with God was there. The tabernacle of meeting. Now, it's interesting that, that Solomon goes to Gibeon because the, the symbol of the presence of God was the ark. But the tabernacle of meeting where you would meet God was in Gibeon. <laughs> it's divided. In Kings, we know that he went both places. But when he wanted to hear from God at the beginning of his reign, he went to Gibeon, the tabernacle of meeting. And he went for a purpose. What was the purpose Solomon went for? He wanted to hear from God. Anybody ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like, I want to hear from God? Because this is what God said in Jeremiah 29 to the very same captives to whom Chronicles is written. In Jeremiah 29, somewhere around verse 13 or 14, the Lord said, When you return and seek for me, you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. United heart. United worship. These are the things God's looking for in His people. Here Solomon wants to hear. He wants to receive from the Lord. He's a little freaked out. He's a young kid and he's running a nation and he's got a big job to do. He's got to build a temple. I'm sure he's feeling a lot of pressure. So he wants to hear from the Lord. So he went to the tabernacle of meeting. Verse 4 says, But David had brought up the ark from Kirjath-Jerim to the place David had prepared for it, and he pitched a tent for it at Jerusalem. You know, sometimes still today we have, everybody wants to build their own tent. Everybody wants to do their own thing. There's a, there's a struggle with the concept of being unified, being together, coming together. Well, it says in verse 5, The bronze altar that Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made, he put before the tabernacle of the Lord. Solomon and the assembly sought him there. Oh, that's kind of important. Bezalel is the guy who built a lot of the stuff that was in the tabernacle. He was uniquely gifted by God. The Word of God says he was empowered by the Holy Spirit to be an artist, to build. 
And he built this altar. And this altar, the bronze altar, folks, is a picture of the cross. That's where the sacrifice was killed. That's where the sacrifice was offered. And when they sought a word from the Lord, where did they go? They didn't go to the ark. They came to the bronze altar, which speaks of the cross. They came to the cross to seek Him there. To seek Him at the place of sacrifice. To get, to receive a word from the Lord. This was their heart. This is their desire. This is Solomon's desire. His whole heart, he's looking for a word from the Lord. So as we look at this first chapter, we're going to see three things. We're going to see Solomon's worship. We're going to see Solomon's wisdom. And we're going to see Solomon's wealth. But as we look at this first part, as we come to the time of Solomon's worship, look at verse 6. Solomon went up there to the bronze altar before the Lord, which was at the tabernacle of meeting, and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. Folks, this is before Solomon has everything. He's going to have everything a little bit later. I don't know how much he had, but I know David used a lot of it. Remember, he gave a lot of it to the temple. And then there's that thing about David bringing the Ark of the Covenant and sacrificing every seven steps from Kirjath Jerim all the way to Jerusalem. Uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of eight to ten miles, I think, if I remember right. So I don't know how many steps there are in eight to ten miles, but that's a lot of sacrificing. But when Solomon comes to a place of worship, here's what I see. He offers a thousand sacrifices. That's extravagant worship. That's extravagant. I think that's the emphasis. And I think sometimes we, I don't know, we, we miss the concept of worship. Worship was the sacrifice that they were offering, but it was, it was more than just, it was the life that they live. Romans 12.1, what does it say? I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, what? A living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. Wow. So presenting your bodies to God is, it doesn't say extravagant. What did it say? Reasonable. That's reasonable. To give yourself away to God. That's reasonable. When I see what Solomon's doing... You know, we would tend to put extravagant or radical. But, I don't know, maybe it's not. Maybe it's just reasonable. But as he comes with an attitude that says, man, I want to hear from God. I want to see what God has to say to me. I want to be able to receive from Him. He comes in this place of worship, seeking the Lord. He wants to know. He gives an extravagant offering, a thousand sacrifices, and they're all burnt offerings. Thousand burnt offerings. The burnt offering in Old Testament scripture signified your consecration to God. Your giving yourself away. For example, if we look at Romans 12.1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourself, your bodies, a living sacrifice. Um, how much of the burnt offering belonged to God? All of it. There was no such thing as a half of a burnt offering. There's no such thing as someone who's almost saved. You're either in or you're out. 
I'm not in, I got my arm and my leg are in, but uh, the rest, my head is still out. I'm trying to get my head in. Or my head's in, but nothing else. No, if you were the burnt offering, you were wholly consecrated to God. And to offer a thousand of those is to be emphasizing over and over and over. I am wholly yours. I am wholly yours. I am wholly yours. How long does it take to do a thousand sacrifices? I'm no great white hunter. Anybody who knows me knows that's true. I wish I was the great white hunter, but I, I, apparently I missed the boat on that whole deal. However, I have hunted in Alaska, shot a caribou, and I butchered a caribou out in the snow. It took a long time. It took a long time to gut it. it. Took a long time to skin it. it. Took a long time to quarter it. it. Took a long time to get all that stuff prepared. We got two of them. And I think I spent the better part of an entire day cutting up and butchering two. When they did the burnt offering, there's the same thing. It was the same thing. The animal's killed, and it and it's it's parts, different parts are divided, laid up on the altar, set up on there, and then that's consumed. How long does that take? Do that a thousand times. I don't want you to think that when Solomon comes seeking the Lord, that he just came like we do sometimes. We come, the Bible says we can enter boldly into the throne of God, right? But it doesn't say it enter boldly to the throne of God and be in a hurry to get out of there. Solomon came and spent however much time it took to do a thousand sacrifices. See, that's what it means to seek the Lord with all your heart. A lot of people say, I want to hear from God. I want to receive a word from Him. I want God to tell me what is it that I'm supposed to be doing in my life or how am I supposed to live my life. And we'll spend 30 seconds and we'll pray together and we'll pray, Lord, reveal Your will. And then that's it. Solomon gave a thousand sacrifices. They killed a thousand bulls. They, they loaded a thousand bulls on a four by four Outdoor barbecue. That's what the bronze altar was, in essence. And they burned them until it was all gone. And they offered another. And 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 another. All the while seeking, Lord, Lord, I just want to hear from You. I want to be fully Yours. Completely consecrated to You. That's a little different than the way most of us go to the throne of God. Isn't it? We read this story of Solomon and the fact that God gives Solomon a blank check and we think, wow, that's incredible. But you know, the blank check happened after this. That extravagant worship, that incredible call on God, that coming into the, to the cross, the place of the cross and offering himself as a sacrifice, consecrated wholly to God. Lord, I'm yours. What do you want me to do? Lord, I'm yours. What do you want me to do? I don't know how to do this. God, help me. Man, that was a, a long time. When the, when the disciples were gathered in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, how long from the time Jesus told them to tarry until the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? 
Well, we know Jesus walked the earth after the resurrection for 40 days. We know the day of Pentecost is 50 days later from Passover. So if Jesus died on Passover, rose, walked for 40 days, roughly you got 10 days left. So the Bible tells us that the disciples were gathered in the upper room in one accord, continuously given to prayer for 10 days. That's kind of mind-boggling to me. Have you ever wanted to hear from God so bad that you dedicated 10 days and nothing but... Being in prayer doesn't mean you're always talking. You guys know that? The Bible says, be still and know that I am God. That's kind of an attitude of worship. Sometimes we need to realize that God gave us two ears and how many mouths? So we should listen how much? Twice as much as we talk, right? So for every word you speak, there should be two words you listen for. (laughs) That's the idea. So they were in an attitude of prayer, a posture of prayer. Ten days. Praying continuously. And on the tenth day, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, what happened? The whole room was shook, and they heard the sound of a rushing mighty wind, like a hurricane. Not some little rushing mighty wind. There's not a stronger term. Like a tornado is what everybody hears. In fact, it's so loud that all the people all around who are worshiping, they come flocking to the upper room. So when the disciples walk outside with the tongues of fire over their head and speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gives them utterance and people are hearing them, the people all gathered, they came from the rushing wind. And that is all wrought because these men and women that were gathered in that place were seeking the Lord with all their heart. And they weren't in a hurry. They were functioning on God's timetable. And that's what Solomon's doing. Functioning on God's timetable. I don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us how long this took, but it had to take some time. It had to take some time. Look what it says in verse 7. So, all that while, I want you to understand, all that while, burn offering, burn offering, consecrating, praising God, no word. It says, on that night, listen to this, God appeared to Solomon. Well, that's a pretty incredible statement, isn't it? On that night, God appeared to Solomon. Now we know no man has seen God the Father ever. The only part of the Trinity, of the triune God that man has ever seen, is Jesus Christ. That's what John 1 tells us. Old Testament, New Testament, it's all the same. So if Solomon sees God, I don't know, this could have just been a dream, maybe he only hears him. But if he sees him, who he sees is Jesus. Period. God is spirit. So he sees God. God appears to him. Listen to what God says. Ask, what shall I give you? Wow, what an incredible thing to hear from the Lord. Right? I mean, gosh, I wish we heard something like that. Do you really wish you heard something like that? Oh, we just got a minute. Hold your finger here and turn to the right. 
and you come to a book of, called Matthew. Everybody familiar with Matthew? Matthew chapter 7, we find ourselves in one of the incredible teachings that Jesus gave called the Sermon on the Mount. Everybody remember the Sermon on the Mount? Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. What does that sound like? Is that really different? What, what, what did he say to, to Solomon? He said, ask, what shall I give you? What did he say in Matthew 7, 7? Ask, and it will be given you. What's the predication in all that? Him who seeks will find. What's the concept? It's when we have delighted. When our enjoyment, when our purpose, when our focus is in Him. And ask, and seek, and knock. That's what the Word of God tells us. The Word of God tells us the same thing God said to Solomon. It's kind of incredible, isn't it? But what happens? We excuse ourselves. Well, I tried it. It really didn't work. I tried this. I tried it, you know, and and it didn't really, it didn't happen. You know, I asked and and God didn't do it. <laughs> what does James say? You have not because you ask not. He also says you have not because you ask amiss. Desiring to spend it on yourself. You ask selfishly. Doesn't change the fact. Solomon didn't ask selfish. Solomon could have asked for a lot of things, couldn't he? But what did Solomon ask for? He said, Solomon said to God, You have shown great mercy to David my father and have made me king in his place. I want you to notice the first place Solomon begins is with thanksgiving. Oh, and what God has already done for him. What had God already done for him? He showed David mercies. Didn't God show David mercy? There was this little thing with Bathsheba, right? That forgiveness is called mercy. What about the census? Oh, yeah, that was another issue. 70,000 men died as a result of that sin. But God showed him mercy. Mercy. So he begins talking about the mercy that he showed to David and the fact that God had made Solomon king. It was God's choice. Solomon was God's man. And so God's, God's saying, Lord, look at what you've done for me. You've made me king. Now, O Lord God, let your promise to David, my father, be established. For you have made me king over a people like the dust of the earth and multitude. So give me wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people. For who can judge this great people of yours. Solomon didn't take ownership of anything. Now what a great place. Solomon is really in a very good place right here. It's not my people. It's not my kingdom. It's God's people. It's God's kingdom. And Lord, I want to do right by your people. So God, give me wisdom that I can lead your people. 
Any example of that in the New Testament? Well, there is in James, right? What did the Lord say through James? He said, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask. And God will give it to him without partiality. God won't withhold wisdom. What's the stipulation? But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the man who doubts is like a man driven and tossed by the wind or the sea. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Is that still available? Can we have that same wisdom? Well, what we got to do? We got to ask. We got to be willing to to go before the throne. We got to be willing to come before the Lord in, in that same attitude of worship to receive these things. We we read these stories and we think, oh, this this happened to Solomon, but that would never happen for me. Whatever trouble is on your horizon, whatever issue you don't know what to do about, whatever thing you're struggling with, God promises that He has the answer and He said He will give it to you. Not He might, not maybe He will. He said, I will give it to you. Just ask me. Just ask me. But I don't think God wants us to go into His throne room like, Lord, I've got a lot of places to be. So here I am, God. Would you please give me wisdom? I got to go. I'm going to be late for work. See you later. That's, that's really all the time I got. And we we wander around through our through our Christian walk, and we think, man, I don't understand why God's not answering my prayers. Really? That's the God of the universe. Can you imagine barging into Obama's office and saying, "Oh, you know what? Hey, I I just got a couple of seconds, Obama. You are a mess, and I got to go." And walk, now maybe you would feel great about it, but you're not going to get away with it. His time is far too valuable for someone like you to be able to get into his office. How much greater is the God of the universe than he? But we would treat the God of the universe with, with less reverence, with less respect than we would treat somebody on the street and we are confused Lord why don't I hear from you God why don't you answer my prayers Lord where are you but all the while the the one thing that God is, is looking for from us that attitude of love he says you'll find me when you seek me with an undivided heart but he says you can't seek me doubting because a doubting man has a divided heart It's a unified heart. It's a unified worship. It's a unified body. One body of Christ. I don't care what name you put on the front of the church. There's only one body of Christ. Every name, every place doesn't make any difference. This is the the attitude that, that the Lord God wants from us. Solomon says, Lord, I want wisdom. And God said to Solomon in verse 11, because this was in your heart. I got that circled, triple, underlined, marked Y. Because God didn't say because this is what you said. He said because this was in your heart. You know, God hears your heart. He don't always hear our words. Right? You know how many times Jesus was facing the Pharisees and the Pharisees are trying to do something, but He answered what was going on in their heart instead of the words that came out of their mouth? 
But this was honestly where Solomon was. I honestly want wisdom, God. I honestly want hear from you. I honestly want to receive from you. He says, because this was in your heart, and you didn't ask for riches or wealth or honor or the life of your enemies, nor have you asked for long life, but you have asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself, so that you may judge my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. And I will give you riches, wealth, and honor, such as none of the other kings who have ever been before you, nor shall there ever be one after. Wow. Is there anything like that in the New Testament? Matthew 6.33, Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these other things will be added unto you. What were all the other things he's talking about in Matthew chapter 6? Matthew chapter 6, he's saying, don't worry about what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat, what you're going to do. Your Father in heaven knows all those things that you need. But rather, seek first his kingdom. Seek him first. Focused on the Lord. Focused on that relationship. And all those things you're worried about, he'll take care of. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added unto you. To me, we're, we're looking at very, very similar things. God gives him wisdom. And Solomon used that wisdom to lead the people. And Solomon built a kingdom. He was so wise in leading the people and judging the people, he knew how to make treaties with nations all around him and he made all these incredible treaties and he made all these incredible deals and he kept everything he did every 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 uh um everything he invested in brought back an incredible return but he never applied all that wisdom to lead god's people to himself to his own life he applied that wisdom to lead the people but he didn't turn it inward he left it outward we know that because we read the book of ecclesiastes if you ever had a chance you haven't done it we still got recordings of fritzy when he went through ecclesiastes solomon's big struggle in understanding how to apply all this wisdom that he has and all this understanding of life under the sun all the things that didn't add up in his life We see God giving unto Solomon wisdom, but then look what it says. So Solomon came to Jerusalem from the high place which was at Gibeon, from before the tabernacle of meeting, and reigned over Israel. And then we have in the next several verses, next three verses, the the culmination of all that Solomon had in his kingdom. Listen. Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, whom he had stationed in the chariot cities, uh, and with the king in Jerusalem. Also, the king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stones. You ever been to Jerusalem? There's a joke. If you ever get a chance to go to Jerusalem, they tell you every time. During creation, God gave a responsibility for all the rocks and where those rocks would go on the earth to two angels. One was lazy and one was diligent. The diligent angel took his pile of stones and he spread them out over the whole world. The lazy angel dumped them all in Israel. In Israel, 
the main building material for Israel is stone. Not wood, it's stone. So this is a hyperbole. This is a, 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 uh, uh, exaggeration to speak about how much gold there was. Okay, it doesn't actually mean that there is more gold than stones. What it's saying is, holy cow, there was a lot of gold and silver. Man, there was more plentiful than the stones in Jerusalem. Lots of gold. Look at verse 16. And Solomon had horses imported from Egypt. And Kiva, the king's merchants, bought them in Kiva uh, at the current price. And they also acquired and imported from Egypt a chariot for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And thus, through their agents, they exported them uh, to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. Wow, they became a chariot dealer. He, he gathered up horses and he gathered up chariots and he liked them so much he opened himself a, 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 a new car lot and he brought in the chariots and the horses and they bought them at the, whatever the price was in Egypt and they sold them to the Hittites and the, and the Syrians. And the Hittites and the Syrians are going to use those chariots against Israel in a few years. It'll be after Solomon's time. Solomon, we see here, he he grew just like God said. God said, I'll give you wealth. And he gave him wealth. God said, I'll give you uh, uh, victory over your enemies. He had peace. Nobody went to war against Solomon. All that was gifted to him by God. But it's interesting as we look here at chapter 1, we see the beginning of the seeds that Solomon sows in disobedience to God's Word. What you do with the wealth, Solomon, that's up to you. I'll give it to you. But what you do with it is up to you. You got your finger here in in Chronicles. We'll, We'll come back to it. I think we'll still have time. Let's go to Deuteronomy. Chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17. We'll look at beginning at verse 14. When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Now this is... God speaking to the children of Israel when they're still in the wilderness. They're not in Israel anymore, or yet. When you come to the land that God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. So God knew they were going to ask for a king, right? When you ask for a king, you will surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your brethren, you shall set his king over you. He may not be a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Verse 16. He shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to go to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not go that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. 
Verse 18, And it shall be as he sits on the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book, from the one before the priests, the Levites. And it will be with him, and he will read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, and be careful to observe all the words of this law and those statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. That was God's directions for the king. God's directions for the king. What did we just read? God gave Solomon wealth. But Solomon multiplied that wealth, didn't he? God gave Solomon wealth, and Solomon used the wealth God gave him to make gold and silver so plentiful in Israel. They, they, they stopped counting it, the Bible says. They don't even count it. I've never had so much money, I don't count it. Didn't count it anymore. Didn't matter. More than you could imagine. But and then he also went and bought horses, right? And traded horses with other nations. And he sent people back to Egypt. God said not to go back to Egypt specifically to get horses, didn't he? Don't go to Egypt. But we just read that, right? It said, it said uh, and Solomon had horses imported from Egypt. And he also acquired and imported from Egypt chariots. Well, so he's trading with them. In fact, his, his first wife, some would argue, were, was uh, from Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter. We also know that, that there in Deuteronomy 17, the Lord said not to multiply wives for yourself. But we know, well, gee, Solomon did that. So, a lot of people did it. Solomon, he did it on a whole new level. Whole new level. A thousand is a lot. Two is too many. A thousand Way overboard. Way overboard. All of these things that Solomon did, even though God gave him wisdom, you still have to utilize that wisdom. He had great wisdom in to build a nation. He built an incredible nation. He empowered the nation. He, he built an economy for the nation. He did all that stuff. But he never applied any of those things to himself. He started so good. He started so well. But in the end, we're going to read that his heart was turned from the Lord. Now, what does that mean? I don't know. We'll find out when we get to heaven. There's good people on the debate of both sides of where is Solomon today. I don't want that to be what people say, but I wonder what happened to Jack. I wonder if he was ever really saved. At the end of my life, if that's still what's being said, that's a that's a wasted life. I only get one. I want people to know what side I'm on. I want to be an example of Solomon there at that altar in extravagant worship, seeking the Lord with all his heart. But I think later on Solomon just begins to trust in the wisdom God gave him. Do you know it's possible to worship the gift God gave you and not the Lord? Isn't it? 
I mean, I know a lot of people who delight in the gifts God gives them, but they don't delight in the Lord. There's a difference, right? There's a lot of people who, in discipleship, we've been talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the anointing of the Holy Spirit and the empowering of the Holy Spirit uh, that we see in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. But there's a lot of people who come to that concept of the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling and overflowing of the Holy Spirit in someone's life to empower them for service. And they come there with a desire for a gift and not for the gift giver. And there, it is possible to worship a church and not the God that the church serves. It's possible to worship worship and not the God to whom worship is directed. It's possible to get our, our focus, our delight, our desire off of what got us here and onto some good thing, but is it's not a good thing if it's taking our eyes off Christ. It's, it's keeping our eyes fixed. The centrality of worship. We see it in chapter 1. The, 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 the big key for me in Deuteronomy chapter 17, around verse 18, when it said, this is what he's supposed to do to keep his heart right. You read the Word. Did you catch it? What do you do to keep your heart right? The king was to make his own copy of the word. The book of this law. The Pentateuch. The five books of Moses. They were to write them out. Make his own copy. And then read that copy every day. So that he would know what I'm supposed to do. If Solomon did that, would he know what was right or wrong? What about David? If David did that, would he know? Would he have known how to bring the ark in? Oh, yeah. Folks, those are the second and third king. And the first king definitely didn't read it. Right? That's Saul. Later on, when we come to the division of the kingdom, we're going to meet a young guy named Josiah. And Josiah, the priest, discovers, this is amazing to me, the priest discovers a copy of the Bible in the temple. And he says, what's this? Can you imagine coming that far? And so he brings that copy to Josiah and says, Hey, what is this? And Josiah opens it up and reads it and goes, Oh, this is a copy of the law. We are way off track. we got to get on track. And he, he brought in this incredible revival among the people as they got back to the Word of God. The Word of God is so vital in our life and it's so neglected. It's a discipline that is neglected in the lives of believers and it's neglected in the lives of believers because a lot of believers say things like, I I don't understand it, I can't get it. You know, I've got an entirety of 30 seconds to devote to God in the morning and in 30 seconds I can't understand anything out of the Word. Maybe you got 30 minutes. Maybe you have more. Tonight, I want to give you something to try. I'm going to give you four psalms. Yeah, four psalms. And I encourage you to make these four psalms your prayer every morning and evening as you read the Word. You want to be a man or woman of God who doesn't get off track. That's how you do it. That's it. 
I'd love to give you some other way. Can I, get, can I just give it, write a check? Sure, that's great, but it's not going to help you. Well, can I just uh, do something in Sunday school instead? No. In fact, if you're not reading your Bible, I would rather you didn't do anything in Sunday school. Sunday school don't need to learn from people who don't read their Bibles. They need to learn from people who are reading their Bibles. So I would encourage you to do these four things. I got these four things from from uh, uh, John Piper. He calls them his IOUs. His IOUs. This is how he does his morning and evening devotions. I like morning and evening devotions because that's what we read about in the Bible, the morning and the evening offering, right? So, you know, I, I tried it. I, I'd love to tell you I'm perfect. I'm not. But that's my goal. Don't set a goal. I'm, I'll tell you for sure you'll never meet it. Set a goal, at least you got a chance, right? The morning and the evening devotions. Let's, uh, let's look. The first one is I for IOUs. My IOUs. I want to give my IOUs. So the beginning of our prayer as we, as we begin our time of devotion, the first one comes from Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Verse 36. The I of IOUs. This is my prayer. Incline my heart to your testimony and not to covetousness. The beginning. Incline my heart to your word, not to a bunch of junk I want. Incline my heart to your word and not to covetousness. I. Verse uh, Psalm, Psalm uh, uh, 119, verse 18, the O in IOUs. Open my eyes that I might see wondrous things from your law. Open my eyes so I could understand your word. Incline my heart to your testimonies, your word, and not to covetousness. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your word, in your law. Then, Psalm 86.11. Psalm 86.11. I, we have, incline my heart. O, open my eyes. You. 86.11. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. The you unite my heart to fear your name. I owe you. Incline my heart, open my eyes, unite my heart. What does God want? An undivided heart, right? A united heart. Unite my heart to fear your name. What is it that Solomon writes to us in the Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. You know David also wrote that in the Psalms, right? Then Psalm 90, verse 14. The S, I-O-U's, right? The S. Satisfy us early with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Satisfy me. I want to be satisfied in the Lord. And I don't want to be satisfied in all the junk the world's got to offer me. 
What is it that happened to Solomon? He started getting all this stuff. Did he find satisfaction in the huge army he built? Did he find satisfaction in the huge family? In all the wives? Did he find satisfaction in all the gold and silver? Read Ecclesiastes. None of that satisfied him. He said, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's a waste of time. It's breath. It's vapor. Until you get to the end. Until you get to the end. Satisfy me by your mercy. I want to be satisfied in the Lord. Incline my heart. Open my eyes. Unite my heart. Satisfy me with you. That's the prayer to begin seeking the Lord with all your heart. You know what I love about it? All of those ideas were taken from the psalmist. All of those were things he asked for, right? He's asking God for those. He's not, there's no condemnation. Oh, you know, I have all these. There's no condemnation. We're built this way. You have not because you ask not. Ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. Sometimes you just got to want it. Old fella driving down the road with a truck full of wood. Old even older than me. And might have been your age, John. And on the top of that truck was the biggest log I have ever seen. Huge. It begged the question, how did you get that up there? The answer came, Son, sometimes you just got to want it up there. There's a lot of wisdom in that. Sometimes you just got to want to hear from the Lord more than you want to turn on the TV or read the book or do the thing or spend the time in some other way. Sometimes you just got to want it. So I encourage you this week, just apply that to your devotion. See if God doesn't incline your heart and open your eyes and unite your heart and satisfy your longing. See if He doesn't. As you come to Him, learn from the beginning of Solomon. Learn from the end of Solomon. Do it right. Seek the Lord with all your heart while you may while He may be found. And you'll find Him. He'll show you. He'll love you. And He'll empower you. And He'll equip you. And your faith will become so much more than it is right now. The only people who shouldn't do any of these things is the one who can say, you know what? My walk with the Lord is better today than it's ever been in my life. And I can't imagine it being any better well then, ignore me. Keep doing what you're doing. But if that's not the case, 
apply. Do not be hearers of the word only, but doers also.